I've met some people mm. who have strong reactions to what the two of you do, you know, yeah, in you terms think? of, <laughs> well, yeah, especially with, you know, with looking so much at Taoism, people kind of wonder yes. why, who I've talked with. And I think that there's less willingness to, you know, mix the theological and the, and the philosophical. And, mm. you know, there's, there, I think there's something to be said for both of you being kind of like that, um, I'll, I'll liken it to Professor Snape, who spends a lot of time studying the dark arts, but yes. he always he always comes back home at the end of the day. Yes. But um, you know, there's people who you know, you know clearly you would know better than me who aren't you know willing to do that. So, hey friends, welcome back. We have got a great show for you. We have a guest, Luca Azuma, who is a former student of mine in the uh, history department, and he is going to be talking with us about his take on the history of the young and restless reformed movement in Southern California and around North America and what that means and why it happened. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit, Stacy and I beforehand, about how we got into the Reformed tradition when we were growing up in American evangelicalism. And it does include uh, some conversation about sexual abuse. So that's your trigger warning. And uh, I'll let Stacy kind of talk a little bit more about that with the opening. Let's go. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons about foxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the crisis text line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. So, Stacy, as I had suggested in the cold open there, we we grew up in American evangelicalism and found ourselves in very deep into the Reformed tradition, also known as Calvinism. How would you characterize that experience? I mean, just from your gut. Mm. Well, I guess for me and my experience, it was... Um, I guess what I appreciated from it uh, was that we went from kind of more of the like evangelical side of things and very emotive. Yeah. And it felt like there was more structure to the reformed tradition. Yes. To the reformed tradition. And it felt like there was, you know, an order of the service and things like that, that I appreciated so that it wasn't, you appreciate the order of the service. So there was an order to the service and things that I appreciated so that it wasn't just, you know, the whim of the pastor and the pastor's, you know, ideas of what he wanted to talk about or cover. I I appreciated uh, that. I mean, at least kind of the version that we had mostly spent more time in, um, you know, there was some stuff they had kind of borrowed from England 
And yes. that, you know, when from you know the Anglican Church that we had visited, we brought More back liturgical. even we brought back even one of our like bulletins, and, and so they kind of even started like model it a little bit. And I and I did feel that there's there was a little bit of in the more of the evangelical world, there was a casualness to their services that I almost didn't like. It was a little commercial and slick for me. Right. And I think that the more of the, the formal service, it just there's something that felt a little bit more holy or I don't know, like Serious. reverence, reverence for God or something. So but then there's the, another piece of it, though, that with all of that, it, there also seemed to like come like all of the structure. They had everything figured out and, you know, just kind of trying to learn a tulip, right? Right. Uh, what is it? Total depravity of man? The five man. points of Calvinism. Uh, Unconditional election. Well, total depravity is... is we, are, we, are, we are completely sinful, top mm-hmm. to bottom. Um, that we are thoroughly infected by sin. That's the T. Mm-hmm. The U. Unconditional election. Which says that God chooses us apart from anything within us. Which is kind of nice if it's if you're focusing on the unconditional love, but of course there's the other piece of double predestination, which really gets people worked up, and that is what if I've been predestined to hell? And so there is this idea that God doesn't have to be just mm-hmm. in that sense, or you could say that God's justice in the Reformed tradition is prim- primarily uh, a way of talking about God's uh, punishment. Right, so justice in in the reform tradition is is not so much like social justice. It's like j- the the just punishment of all of us. We all deserve hell. Right. So it's pretty easy for God to be just because we all we're all deserving of damnation. Then any bad thing that happens to us, you know, you can't really complain about it. Uh, there's an old joke. What does the Calvinist say when he falls down the stairs? I'm glad that's over with. In other words, it was faded, you know, right, I mean, you know, and, right. and, and I listen, I've been, I spent a long enough time in the tradition. I, gosh, my, uh, my doctoral dissertation was about Theodore Beza, the architect of kind of proto scholastic reformed theology. And so I understand that, that I'm kind of being, uh, somebody who's painting with a broad brush or a caricature, but at the same time, that's the caricature that a lot of actual reform people in Orange County were dealing with. Right. To go faster, limited atonement. Well, really quick, I want to back yeah. that because I did find that freeing a little bit, you know, with the um, unconditional election and that, like, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about, like, I didn't have to worry, you know, uh, am I too much of a sinner or, you know, some of those things, you know, that, that this was something bigger than all of that. Now, what was really scary to me was the limited atonement because then that was what Christ died only for those that are going to be saved or that are saved, right? That God has already predetermined that are are saved. And so, you know, the constant concern is, am I in that category? And often, you know, sort of how I've kind of heard it dealt with was, well, if you're asking that question, you know, and of course, if you're a faithful member, yeah, of course, you're, you're, you're in that type of thing. So that was a little, you know, a little comforting and that, you know, I guess maybe you'll fall away later or something like that if you weren't, but I don't know. It just, there was a scariness attached to it for me. And of course I, you know, I'm probably, I'm sure I'm not saying it all right or whatever, but this was my understanding of it during the time that I was in it. And one of the implications is that 
if you if you look at limited atonement or particular redemption, you know, it's a way that some would like to use. Uh, it's some phrase that they would like to use that doesn't sound as bad. Like it's you know, God's not limited, right? Um, at the same time, there's a sense in which um, it's pretty clear to a young person look, looking at it, that God does not love everybody. There are some people that are enemies. They're on the outs. Right, and, and that's, that's that a, was that constant worry of like yeah. you know. But but, but I'm, I'm I'm saying also, how would we think about other people? So I don't have to have compassion on the infidels that are suffering because they're they're. I guess it's like that's already it's already ha- you know you, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's, and God doesn't necessarily love them. Jacob he loves Esau he hates, and so some not, people got it. They're hates. not God's people, right? Which then it does, yeah, there's that them versus us, you know, sort of stuff. And I think you could probably, you could probably at that point justify, uh, I guess, like even doing, like not being kind to these people, <laughs> you know, if they're, they're not right. God's people. So like, I don't have to worry about them or something. I don't know. But it just, there was a, a you know what I mean? Like we're intentionally talking them. about the negative here. There's no doubt. I mean, this is what we're, we're kind of reflecting back on the parts that weren't, weren't as uh, helpful. Mm-hmm. And then there's of course, irresistible grace, irresistible grace saying that God kind of just comes and says, you know, Hey, if, if I'm going to, well, if you're one of the ones, then there's, there's nothing you won't, you won't reject it. If you're one of the God's people, right? You can't. Like, it's irresistible. But there is something kind of weird about this culture of saying you don't really get choices over your own beliefs. Now, at a very technical level, the Reformed tradition says, yes, you will respond. You'll respond uh, in faith in, and in, and it will be genuinely you. Right? God changes your heart, and so you do what you want. But the idea that there's this irresistibility to God's love is a little different from the kind of uh, honoring of individuals that I think is important for us to understand in our general lives, right? Like, if I am in love with you, that doesn't mean I get to kind of keep stalking you. Mm. You need to have the agency to be able to say, do you want to be in this relationship or not? And so there is that fundamental sense. Yeah, so I guess, like, for me, there was a sense of which, like, life... It did kind of feel like you're just living out somebody else's pre-made video game. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that I'm only going to like these things or not like these things because it's already been controlled from uh, up top way, you know, way back when. And I guess other than the fact that we don't really know exactly what that is so that because we can't see it, then it still feels like an adventure when we're at, you know, involved in it. But it. So it takes away, in a weird sense, some of the responsibility of what might happen. But it was really kind of bleak to think that it's all been prescripted. Like, Yeah. And then you get to Perseverance of the Saints, which is probably the nicest one of them in the sense that you, you don't lose your salvation. You're not in and out. There was this late Roman Catholic idea that, you know, it was a bad thing for you to think you were saved. Because then that was the sin of presumption. So this gave people the sense that if you're if you're one of God's people, He's not going to let you go, and that that's a good thing. But then the the downside, of course, then people start thinking, well, "Am I one of those people?" Yeah, you know. Of so course. you're always well, kind of looping back. And then the other thing about the Reformed tradition, this is the first time that I had really ever like learned and like had to like think about excommunication and what is it to be excommunicated from a church and and like basically not allowed to be a part of this church body or these people and that, wow, like you can do something, I guess, that 
then the people will say, oh, you're not one of God's people. You are excommunicated. Yeah, you're, so you're then not. it felt like all of the assurance that I felt that, you know, that maybe I was, you know, that I'm one of God's people, these people could decide I'm not one of God's people. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. I, then what, then really like, are you I cut off from the covenant. Is there, is it only hell for me now? Yeah. You know, that was really scary for me. Yeah. I had never really, like, I always kind of in my, the evangelical world, I thought, well, if I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, I made a decision, you know, I made a decision to be a Christian in that world. And I could undecide if I wanted to. Well, in this world, it's already made for me. I'm hoping I'm one of the people. And then the other people can sometimes, if they're more godlier than me, I guess, they can, or have, you know, maybe the authority of a pastor or whatever, that they are the ones that can say that I am not and kick me out. And, and it felt like, um, like you could just be dropped at the door and abandoned in a weird way. And that was like a scary thought to me, uh, it, you know, that when I kind of learned of that. When Calvinists, uh, who should be called Reformed Christians, when they talk about all these things, they tend to not emphasize the five points of Calvinism. Those points come out of the uh, canons of the Council of Dortrecht or Dort that was responding to the Arminians. Jacob Arminius believed in free will, and so they condemned those, and there are five things that Arminius said, and they're the exact opposite of Tulip. So it's not really the, the central piece of what it is to be reformed. And there's some really great pieces and, and, and wonderfully pastoral expressions, such as the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. I think those, those are the best of breed. But there's also the sense in which, as you're saying with, with, uh, with excommunication, Luther comes along and he says, you know, if you're wondering where the church is, the church is where the Bible is preached, where the gospel of Jesus is preached. That's where the church is. But then people said, well, yeah, there's a lot of weirdos saying that they're <laughs> part of the church. Let me close my window real fast. And, uh, and so they had to say, well, okay, uh, the, the church is where the, the word is preached and then the sacraments are rightly administered. You know, so that that seems to make make sense. Baptism, communion, you're good. But then they say, well, wait a minute. What about the other five sacraments? And should you have wine uh, for everybody? Uh, should you have unleavened bread? So people started to divide over the the way that they would do the sacraments. But the thing that's interesting about the Reformed tradition is that most of them kind of added a third mark of the church. So it's where the word is preached, yes, where the sacraments are administered, yes, rightly. Which well, then, what does and that so mean? What, yeah, how do you define rightly? But then but. it's where there's discipline. So some Reformed churches kind of needed to have discipline to show the authority of the elders. And there was this kind of emphasis that we noticed on the authority of the elders and the elders having control over how you ran your family. Yeah. How my dad didn't be, you know, my dad wasn't able to get all eight of us to church. And so one of the Reformed elders... Said he couldn't be an elder or, yeah. you know, yeah. And then, um, and then you know, uh, not obeying the authority of, uh, of a reformed pastor for you uh, made it so that you were kind of threatened with excommunication for not even being supportive. And, and, and really the idea is you got to go through, through the elder's authority. So there is this, that, oh, this exchange. And, and really, um, I, don't, I don't think that, let's say, my, my pal Mike Horton really was into that stuff, but I don't think he even understood at the time. Mike Horton uh, in the 90s started this thing called Christians United for Reformation, and it was a blast. I mean, even now, if you go back 
to some of the old stuff. It was so much fun. It was it was uh, kind of kicking against uh, modern evangelicalism and some of its goofiness. But then we got brought into the old like Dutch world of the Christian Reformed Church, and then then they had a split, so they became even more conservative. The the OPC Presbyterians, the Orthodox Presbyterians, these cats. Um, started to talk to us about not being able to do things on Sunday. And that was a little bit heavier than what I had expected. For me, Mike Horton helped us to break free from legalism. But then by joining him in the Reformed tradition, we found ourselves in a whole new set of legalisms. So in the old days, we couldn't watch R-rated movies. Then we could go to a Calvinist church and we could have cocktails. Goodness gracious, we could have cocktails with church people and smoke cigarettes this is very freeing, but you can't do anything on Sunday like, you know, one of the gentlemen, one of the elders said, I was not allowed to have a barbecue on Sunday with the youth kids because I was a youth worker there. Because that's work with your cooking. Yeah. He's like, are you going to be scraping the, the grill? Well, that's work. <laughs> well, and, and and that church in particular, it seemed like... Um, Wonderful people. I love those cats. Yeah. But it did seem like they were definitely more concerned with, um, and I guess kind of my, my reformed experience all over. It was it was not really so much about uh, evangelizing or really wanting to necessarily pull people out, in, you know, into the church from the community as much as it's kind of there already for its own. If it's you will, it's about obedience. I know, but I mean, like, oh, you're like, saying, oh yeah, right. Like, so we were we started getting. We only had started with like kind of five kids um, in the youth group, mm-hmm. and I and I took this job on. And then we had a great time drawing in uh, Latino and black students, and, and, and they I thought that was like exactly what I was supposed to do. But it, I'm not saying they were racist, but they were very clearly not the Dutch kids I was supposed to be babysitting. Right. You know, it, right. it was like they, they call sometimes the reform the frozen chosen. And I, and, I, <laughs> and I think they were worried about them using the church parking lot for basketball and some of these things like as if like, you know, somehow the church is going to get vandalized and that kind of stuff. But it was definitely our resources are for these folks. And it seems like these kids, they want to eat your pizza and maybe not stay for uh, you know, the other parts, you know, and don't they, and they, the big problem is they would still stay for your lessons, but I think they never translated for them walking into the big people service. And so I think that that was where they were saying, if they're not going to come in to the big people service ever, right, then they're not really part of the church. Let's not keep spending time and money on them. And, you know, that's the, that's one particular example of it. But for me, um, the first time I came across the word reformed was actually as I was at something called the Christian Research Institute, and I was researching about uh, Bill Gothard. We've talked about him with my buddy Chris, um, uh, about how our band, our rock and roll band, was trying to uh, play rock and roll at the church and uh, in in the youth room as our practice studio, and the pastor was promoting this guy, Bill Gothard, who said that long hair is bad shouldn't have that. And more importantly, the drum beats, the African drum beats that we're using, the the rock and roll beat is bringing demons. It's calling upon demons into the community. So they wanted to lock that down. So I got really deep into this Bill Gothard guy and they called him reformed. Now that's kind of weird because at the time I thought, well, he's not like, 
like a notable Calvinist. That's not the main thing he's known for. But I think this is where I think most people are thinking today when you think about Reformed. It's it's often going to be about people like, um, uh, who was the guy at Mars Hill? Um, the, the the Mars Hill Church up in Seattle. And he got, oh, I can't even I remember. Can't How remember. can I, Mark Driscoll. Oh, yeah. And uh, so anyway, so it's like kind of that that sort of thing. Um, but what, what is that? It's, it's, it's masculine authority. It's manliness. It's, it's a kind of a fetish for authority in general, because the key reform thing is the sovereignty of God, not so much the five points of Calvinism in particular, but just that God is sovereign. And then God works through these instruments, these people that are then in this hierarchy of power. So in Bill Gothard's book, he has this hierarchy depicted um, in, in, in his, like the notebooks that he would use for, for youth programs and, and these conferences he would do so that you've got Christ as the big umbrella. Underneath Christ is the husband who protects the family. Uh, beneath the husband is the wife, and beneath the wife is the children. This is very, very important. I'll post an image of this on our show notes at protectyournoggin.org, but it just kind of shows you, when we're talking about the Reformed tradition, it's also a kind of a cultural thing. You know, there's like a cultural backlash against feminism, um, emotion, in, in the church, which which may be seen as too feminine, that sort of thing, uh, but also pushing back against anybody who doesn't believe in the uh, in the structures of authority that God um, s- seems to have placed in society. Now, the, the, the thing that's troubling, and this is the part where we're talking about sexual abuse, which is really unfortunate, um, there is a worksheet that I've got, uh, and I'll also post this as an image, uh, but on this uh, worksheet, it is about Goth- Gothard's um, uh, advice, or this is kind of how to proceed if you encounter uh, sexual abuse. So if you're a counseling, if you're a pastor or a youth worker, and you're counseling kids in the church, this the title of this is um, Counseling Sexual Abuse, right? So uh, number one, it starts out with the parts of our being. And the parts of our being are uh, emotions, will, mind, and spirit. And spirit's right in the middle, or you would say body, soul, and spirit. So it's this trichotomy view that there's like your body and your spirit, and these are different aspects. So when I'm looking at, you know, this little chart, it does remind me of, because I mean, even Gothard was part of, you know, some of what we were exposed to uh, during our evangelical days in a non-denominational church. But if you notice, so they have spirit in the beginning, or the very, very middle, I mean, and then you go out with mind, will, and then emotions, and body, right? On Actually, the outer ring. Um, yeah. Well, then we then soul was in there too. But what I'm saying is, is body and emotions are on the very edges of yes. the whole thing. And so, like a denial of those things is really being valid indicators of much of anything of what you should be paying attention to in a way, because right. it's like the outside of the ring. Do not pay attention to your body, to your body or, or your, emotions. your emotions, right? Exactly the opposite of what we teach here. Uh, protect your noggin. And this has a line drawn directly over to their point six, which is in the second column. It points to... What is being mighty in spirit? So now there's this is going to be in point six, which we'll get to in a second. But what's the point? It's kind of indicating. It doesn't say it explicitly. So being mighty in spirit is sort of where your heart should right. be, the center of everything. So if you've been abused, if you've been emotionally or physically abused, if something has been harming your body or your emotions, don't worry. Just be mighty in spirit. Be mighty in spirit. And, you defi- can get and we'll it. talk about what that is. Yeah. Number two. 
uh, which part is the most important? This is of body, mind, and spirit. And of course, then it, it just points us to a Bible verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 5, 8, that tells us that, tells us that uh, the least important thing is the body. Don't worry about the body, right? Okay. It, uh, terribly uh, mis- misappropriated. But I mean, this is this is some of the most horrific material I've ever seen. Mm, I mean, this to mm-hmm. me is the most uh, insidious, demonic thing I've ever seen. Number three. Number three is what did offender damage? And it says, what parts do we damage with bitterness and guilt? So. It's if the, the offender. Hurt our body. Damages you, then. The real damage comes with bitterness and guilt. Right. So I, as the victim, would be the one who's causing the problem because I'm disrupting the spiritual aspect of the church, even though they hurt me in body. Right. But then you're going to hurt everybody else with bitterness and guilt. Right. Number four. Why did God let it happen? (laughs) Oh, that's just terrible. Like that God is going to like let this happen. So this, of course, is that. Calvinistic thing like what's the what is the, the question is weird yeah so basically if you it goes on to explain a little bit more and it says result of defrauding by immodest dress indecent exposure being out from protection of our parents and being with evil friends so God is going to let this stuff happen if you're I guess, implicated in any of these four, you know, any of these things that they did explain, <laughs> which, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. I mean, basically, so you've got to make sure you stay with your parents, stay away from the evil friends and be very careful with how you dress. And of course, number four here is, is blaming the victim. Yeah. Uh, this is like what happened, uh, you know, at a Christian college where I was, as infuriating, um, somebody uh, uh, was assaulted. Had, there was a sexual assault. There was drinking involved, and the answer of the student life staff was, "Well, that's what you get when you're drinking." And this is a, this horrific problem that it's very common in Christian college circles. Number five: Is there any guilt? Uh, okay, so yeah, let's see. Like, so guilt, guilty? Are uh, you guilty for disobedience? So did you somehow? Were you disobedient that somehow I'm, I'm guessing would be what? That somehow you might have caused this because of your disobedience? The right? next one, for not reporting it. Okay, I guess yeah. there's guilt for not reporting it. It says, see, see Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24. And then it says, failing to report it allows other to also be abused. So at least, I guess, there is the implication. But I will s- they're putting it all on the kids, though. Oh, I know. And what I'm trying to say is that it's very hard to... It's somebody's personal thing. They don't have to... It's not anybody else's business whether somebody is able or willing to talk about what happened. But this is... The, but now they're attributing guilt there if right. you don't. And so, like, well, a, why did another you say something thing? seven years ago when it happened? Yeah. Or, you know what I'm saying? that Because you know anybody that's in that situation is going to likely have some time to have to process. And then it says, clear guilt by confessing it to God. See 1 John 1, 9. Explain the potential of a, and in quotes, moral vaccination. So, like, you won't do this again, so don't be dressing immodestly or hanging out with bad friends. And a test of genuine love by casting out fear for marriage. So still get married, still do all right. that. You're going to cast out fear and give this another try. Huh. The, 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 I think the, probably the number one most obscene 
um, points of this worksheet is number six. Read it. Oh, it's so upsetting. Just the question. If abused was not at fault is how it starts. If I ever saw that, and I, I mean, this is, this is, damn like, this stuff. God <laughs> compensated physical abuse with spiritual power. So then he's going to go into all this. We get to be mighty in spirit, so we're going to grow through it. So if I was not at fault, so, I'm going to get something from it. And what is being mighty in spirit? It's greater faith, spiritual discernment, genuine love, wisdom and understanding, creativity, energy, energy, enthusiasm, joy, and inner peace. See, there we go. We grow past. And, oh, this is true. You can grow past the traumas and, and become a more resilient, interesting person. But that doesn't mean that you're going to focus on this. I mean, there's some things that but, somebody's hurting with. But God compensated physical abuse with, with abuse with spiritual power. Like God's going to compensate. So if you've been, you've been abused and you're not at fault, apparently, then you're going to get compensated with this gift from God of this extra boost of spiritualness or something. It's number, like, oh my gosh, it's so upsetting. Number seven is the example of Daniel, which is making me shudder now because um, I think what it's saying is that, uh, that he was extremely abused. They, castrated him, I guess, uh, at least according to this worksheet. And that probably is true. I still remember that. I should look it up. Uh, but extreme abuse, he was essentially kidnapped, taken away from his family, right? But he then gained wisdom and understanding and he became a counselor to four kings. So, so hey, you know, get over it. It's a, you know, no big deal. Uh, you'll, you'll have all these great things that happen. You so can be great like make, Daniel, yep. too. Which is all fine and true, but like, come on, this is the stupidest thing to tell somebody. Number eight. Also... The women didn't have a chance to be like Daniel in the same way. Like you're, you're not going to be a counselor to four kings. Mm-hmm. You just, you know what I mean? Like they're not. Anyway, it's just. So I can't it, read number eight because it's too upsetting. You read it, please. If you had to choose dot dot dot, it says no physical abuse or mighty in spirit. What would you choose? <clears throat> like. So your abuse is okay because you're going to get mighty in spirit. Like, oh, my gosh, this is like. So aren't you glad that this happened? (laughs) And then number nine, reason for bitterness. He damaged your body. Important step, dedicate your body to God. Number 10, prayer to dedicate your body to God. Place yourself on his altar to serve him. Uh, Forgive offender. Turn over to God for his discipline or ask God to pardon and then regain surrendered ground cleanse with haremas. I love how this, it's kind of like Scientology where there's all these like kind of wacky. So mm. forgive the offender. This is where we talked about forgiveness <clears throat> being a, um, a, a tool for, for, for cruelty. Now, um, lest you think, friends, well, of course, Bill Gothard's a nut job, right? Okay. Terrible guy. By the way, accused of, of uh, molesting an underage girl. Um, I don't know what happened with that. I, the guy's the guy. That's the kind of he's he's filled with all sorts of horrendous things like that uh, in his in in the in the history of his work. Uh, and he was removed. So I mean, obviously, it was a big enough deal. But lest you think that this is just one nut job, not the real reform tradition. And I understand, like maybe it's not. There is some sense in which there's a correlation, unfortunately, between Calvinistic beliefs, it seems, and uh, certain forms of abuse. And in um, Emily Joy Allison's book, Hashtag Church 2, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing, um, I was surprised to find that she had, you know, a little extended conversation about Calvinism and how this plays in. Um, And uh, Stacey, would you read that uh, passage from page 135? 
A 2018 academic study explored the intersection of particular Calvinist theological beliefs and the acceptance of what is known as domestic violence myths, and in parentheses DMVs, or interpersonal violence myth, IPVMs. Domestic and interpersonal violence myths abound in American society. And in practice, they may sound like the following. Well, she provoked him. What happens in their marriage is between the two of them. It's nobody else's business. He just punched a hole in the wall. It wasn't that serious. Why doesn't she just leave? I would. That would never happen to a man. He must be lying. She's probably just making it all up to get revenge. They only did that because they were drunk. A real Christian man would never abuse his wife. You can't rape someone you're married to. If he really assaulted her, she would have had told someone right away. So you can see that these beliefs, you know, um, are reflected in the, the, the bit that we were reading from Gothard, but they're, they're more widespread amongst uh, reform culture. And continue, Sarah. Yeah, she continues. I've heard each of these sentiments personally, all from Christians. And there are many more. These myths permeate our cultural conversation about domestic and interpersonal violence. And the church is particularly saturated with this kind of thinking. And unfortunately, studies have also shown that adherence to these myths does correlate to greater perpetuation of violence. Now, we don't talk about this hardcore stuff with Luca. We're talking about a general take on on what he sees as somebody who kind of because he's younger, he's looking at it from a different angle, more of a historical angle. So um, so that's kind of this first part was just for us to kind of hit hard some of these these issues that we've been meaning to get to. Uh, and since Luca is uh, writing a piece that you can read, uh, we will have the whole piece that he wrote uh, at uh, org in the show notes. So check that out. But uh, in the meantime, stick around now and uh, join us as we have a conversation with Luca Azuma. Well, I'm pleased to be sitting here with Stacy and Luca Azuma, who is a graduate of Concordia University and the History and Political Thought Department. What's really exciting is, whereas Stacy and I lived a piece of 20th century American evangelical history, he has recently been looking into um, the history from the perspective of somebody who was born just after we joined a little thing called the Reformed Movement. You know, it was a loosely affiliated thing. Stacy and I were involved in um, uh, Christians United for Reformation, which was a group of, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, that were in there were ex-non-denominational uh, folks that got really excited about the Calvinist theology, but most importantly, um, just kind of give, gave us some roots. We had, we had such a kind of a, a bourgeois, a suburban experience of Christianity. But before we get there, Luca, how you doing? Doing well, thank you. Man, it is good to see you again. Stacy didn't know this, but where did you go to church? Uh, where do you go to church now, I mean? Chabuco Canyon Community Church. <laughs> Chabuco Canyon. Stacy, what, what, what was that? We have history there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what's our history with that little church? Well, we... 
we definitely um, attended there. Uh, my biggest memory is um, your best friend got married there. That's when I when I think of that, I remember the wedding very well. We've I remember had Chris the views. and Amber on the show. Yes, we have, and um, and I just love. Yeah, I, I remember the the scary road kind of going up to it <laughs> um, at the time, and um, and then I, I guess you were a youth pastor there. I forgot about that. Yeah, this kind of takes us to it. How did we get into? kind of following Christians United for Reformation, which became the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals and the um, the Modern Reformation magazine, the White Horse Inn, the radio show. I've written for those now recently um, and been on the show, you know, over the over the years. And, and that was kind of a really big deal for me because it was this huge movement that had such profound influence on our lives. And then all of a sudden I got this this former student who's done graduate work and kind of is looking at this from a historical perspective. So could you maybe, uh, Luca, just kind of tell us about your experience with Southern California Christianity before we kind of get started? Um, you know, because as you're going to this church, we went to that church because Stacy and I were part of one of the bit, like the first kind of proto mega churches, which was Grace Community Church in uh, Lake Forest. And they were kind of um, shepherded by a guy named Dick Bush, who was the uh, he was a graduate of Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. He was Presbyterian, but had uh, rejected the the liberal drift of the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church. And so he started this church that still had a lot of kind of formal worship. It was hymns. It was long sermons. And yet everybody else around us was getting into Calvary Chapel. Mm. The, the Jesus freaks now well, kind of become yuppies. You and know. even my first experience at church was in the Sunday school at Saddleback when it was at Tribuco High School. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So that, this is like this is and an a episode. neighbor a neighbor brought me there, which and then and then it was later that my parents started attending Grace Community Church, um, because that was a little bit too, it got too large and too, as you mentioned, kind of commercial. Yeah. At least that's how we saw it in the day. Mm-hmm. So into that context comes uh, uh, this kind of reaction. We ended up going to Tribuco Canyon to follow our youth pastor, who was the youth pastor at Grace Community Church. He went over and became the senior pastor at this little tiny church up on a hill right next to the Vedanta Society, uh, which is a Hindu monastery, basically, um, just just across the way. It's a really nice retreat area. and um, And yet we went there for a little while, and then we ended up leaving partly because... I converted to Calvinism at the time, and so that was kind of a, an interesting piece of it. So, again, how did you um, how did you kind of come in contact with American Christianity as a as a kid growing up here? So, I'm a little bit young to really remember, be conscious of what I first came into contact with. So, I first started going to Mission Hills Community Church mm. um, when I was maybe just getting into middle school. Um, and then the past, the head pastor there was Mike Beals, and he left to become president of Vanguard, uh, Vanguard University in Costa Mesa. Now, this is so interesting. Mission Hills Community Church. Is this mm-hmm. in Santa Margarita? It is, yeah. You're never going to believe this. Did you ever did you ever have a, a theology class with me, core theology? I did not have core. I just had Christians and ethics. Christians and ethics. Well, check this out. Um, my whole origin story for becoming a theologian mm-hmm. at the time uh, now I'm chair of history and political thought, but at the time, the reason I wanted to study theology was because I ran away from school, and it was a school run by Mission Hills. So if anybody mm-hmm. knows like my origin story, I do not impugn the the character of the current 
you know, church, Mission Hills, because it was a different thing. It was like in the 80s. Like, what is that? Any more than you could, you know, impugn what our church experience was at Grace Community Church, even though later on there was a youth pastor that had several sexual assault um, convictions. So that's weird. How was that? Before we get any farther, like, so what was what was Mission Hills like when you were when you were engaged with it? It's hard to say. I was mostly just in like the Sunday school kind of, and then I went to the youth group. Did you um, go to the school? School? No. No. Right. But there was a school. There's still a school there. I don't know. Mm. This is this is the first time that we have we have officially stated on the show. We've been talking about that that running away from school story for years. I've never actually mentioned what church it was. Oh. Mm-hmm. At the time, we were in a different spot, and we were in a strip mall in Mission Viejo, and then they shifted down uh, down the road. Pause. This is before really a Santa Margarita got built right. Mm. be before our eyes mm-hmm. so when i was a kid in the 80s we uh we used to hike all the way out to like cook's corner but we was across a field where there were you know bobcats and, and mountain lions and deer and stuff and now it's uh well, and, and jeff's, jeff's band was part of a save the canyon yeah interestingly right to stop the My, building of saddleback we, we mentioned yeah we mentioned canyon. our friend chris he was the drummer in our band and we um opened for a little festival that had um we were part of a little festival that had robbie krieger from the doors playing and we were playing to stop saddleback church from building in, in the, the habitat that we loved which made it difficult later for me to try to get a job as a youth pastor <laughs> there. I digress. I like this is, we're terrible. So like, you know, trying to get Luca to tell a story and then now we're just telling our story, but this is great. It intersects. So anyway, so that's what you were, you know, first kind of engaged with. Yeah. So I went to, you know, my, I think my faith really started coming along when I started going to youth group there, which was run by Jason Carson, the former drummer of the OC Supertones, funnily enough. Um, and then the church, so the head pastor left to become president of Vanguard, and then it merged with another church down the road, which is part of the Foursquare denomination. Mm. And then, you know, I had a little bit of exposure to that, but I didn't. It hadn't yet filtered down to the youth group, really the the core principles that were being taught in the main service. Mm. And I don't know that, that they happens a lot. Yeah, if they ever really do, because I don't know if that nuance always gets passed down, but. Um, then I left for Concordia. Um, I had some exposure to the Lutheran world already because my grandfather is from Minnesota, and that That'll is yep Lutheran <laughs> country. So, but he was, I think, went to an ELCA church. But again, I would, I didn't really get the difference back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started going to Chapico Canyon Community Church because um, my girlfriend lives right next to it, so that that always helps. Um, and she was, had been going there for a while. And that's kind of where I first ran into, um, I guess you could say, New Calvinism. Because funnily enough, I guess that church has come full circle and is now moving into the, in that direction. Um, Tribuco Canyon. Tribuco Canyon Community Church. That is wild. Because I remember when we, were, when we were younger, to keep going with this, when we were younger... We had to tell our youth pastor, you know, like, this is where we're going. They're like, oh, no, this is terrible. This is like some kind of cult, you know. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. But it did become a big issue. So that's that's kind of one of the reasons you got interested in it. You were seeing that people were kind of in that um, in that way of thinking. Yeah, definitely. I think, well, I first got into it because my, my brother attends Compass Bible Church, and he's very um, plugged in and involved there. And they are certainly, I would say more in that direction of 
reformed, definitely. Um, but Chirico Canyon Community Church, you know, it's a lot smaller. I would say it's a lot. Until now, it's be, it's been less ideologically, you know, all one thing in terms of the theological spectrum. But recently, you know, we've had a vote on new constitution. Um, you know, so that's kind of what what's really started, you know, bringing the reform movement into my own life. Now, for a lot of young people in my day, it was, well, this is a very consistent way of thinking, right? So Calvinism, the reform tradition provides a very clear doctrinal view of the world that while it may have some difficult parts like uh, teachings about predestination and especially especially what Lutherans call double predestination, that you don't just have God predestining people to salvation, but some people are reprobate, predestined to hell. You get the five points of Calvinism, all of that. Um, that was the emphasis for us, but what, what would you see as the emphasis for the folks who are going in that direction of, of the Reformed tradition? What are they really after? What's the, what's the key, you know, kind of takeaways for what they're, what they're really emphasizing? that's that's really hard to say i mean i think it's hard to point at one thing and say that this is the the motivation but i think the theology has certainly moved in a direction where it's it's to me it all always comes back to to sovereignty um this is just purely theologically speaking and then from sovereignty it's glorifying god uh, taking the the self out of the equation from you know moving directly contrary to free will that that kind of thing um but culturally it's more of an interesting question because in looking at it i think that there's a certain connection between the reform movement and the loss of the culture wars Mm. um so kind of Tim Keller had a really interesting chart in one of his books where he basically laid out like the theologically liberal tend to be less cloistered I guess you could say the theologically Mm -hmm. conservative are pulling more and more away from engaging with the culture like happened in the middle of the 20th century with evangelicalism which by my understanding was a lot more willing to engage with culture or have debates in the public sphere rather than you know more recent reformed tradition. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think um, the way that's like a, a Mark Knoll, the American church historian Mark Knoll would say it is that, you know, right after, uh, well, in the early 20th century and then right up until right after the uh, World, World War II, evangelicals had really kind of left the culture with their tail between their legs because of the rise of modernism and then fundamentalism's pushback. You get some kind of worldly fundamentalists like B.B. Warfield and Jake, uh, Gresham Machen on the East Coast who were intellectually sophisticated, they were academically respected, but they found themselves increasingly no longer able to kind of stay with the Princeton Seminary um, progressive drift of the mainline Ultimately, though, many people see through Darwinism and just just reason and the rise of modern science and the nuclear age that you can't really you can't really trust fundamentalism anymore. And so it kind of goes off in its own little corner. You get uh, 
Bible colleges that aren't really trying to engage faith and learning, but they're just kind of teaching the faith to students in a closed society. Some people point to people like, you know, Billy Graham, who move into a more, um, what we move from, let's say, uh, fundamentalism to post-fundamentalism or um, evangelicalism, or evangelicalism defined as perhaps a a mood shift, not so much a theological shift. So evangelicals in the mid-1950s still believed in the kind of fundamental basic teachings of the fundamentalists, but they went to dances, they would go to a movie, they were able to kind of engage the world increasingly, and you start to see this at places like you know, Wheaton, where they're still conservative, but they're now trying to talk about faith and film and faith and popular music, especially as the 60s and 70s roll on. And so what you think of as the evangelicals being more ecumenical tends to be related to these kind of big stadium movements. Like I saw, like, you know, up until like the like 1985, I saw Billy Graham at the Angel Stadium and Johnny Cash was there. And there were some fundamentalists that really hated this because, uh, and certainly Lutherans who who uh, don't like some of these uh, as what they call syncretistic or uh, synergistic um, rather uh, movements, they they don't want to play with the United Methodists and the mainline Presbyterians. But Billy Graham did. So Billy Graham brings them all in, and it's funny for us to look back on it and know that places like Bob Jones University um, would see Billy Graham as a liberal. Whereas the rest of the world sees him as, you know, like maybe as a, as a conservative evangelical. And, and I think that's, that's fair to say, but it kind of shifts. And you're saying that there is this then, there's this movement in the 20th century towards a greater embrace of ecumenical dialogue amongst evangelicals. You have the rise of the National Association of Evangelicals that kind of counters the World Council of Churches. And yet you're saying now that what Keller and others are noting, right, is that there's there's increasingly now silos forming in, in American Christianity. Uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting because my impression is that Billy Graham has started to fall out of favor in reformed circles. Mm. Um, and that and everything you represented. You know. Yeah, and I think that there's what's happening increasingly on the American scene of christianity especially in reform circles is that the if there's like a, a circle or a nucleus of things that are your your core beliefs um i think people are the american church is becoming increasingly willing to die on every hill and seeing mm. everything even the smaller minor theological points is all interrelated so if you give up one of those then you're inevitably going to give up everything else Mm. Um, so, you know, which makes, you know, a broader or more cleft separation of, you know, the church with, you know, the quote unquote world, I guess. Right. So that makes that, that, that's a really good way of phrasing it because it's not just that the reform don't want women pastors, but it's that if you give up on the women pastors, you're, you're conceding to a whole set of other things. There's like a domino effect that could happen. Yeah. If you go to protectionnoggin.org, you can see not only the show notes for what we're talking about today, but also a link to um, Luca's review of a book um, uh, by uh, Michael Kruger, and uh, it's called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. So uh, what what led you to picking up this book, and uh, what's it about? So this book was 
put forth to me by some members of our congregation who are starting what they call like a fireside chat resource center to talk about Christianity and culture. And it's not, I guess, not nominally like a, a top down thing. It's just like a discussion on Sunday evenings, like once a month. Um, so that's where I first came into contact, contact with this book. Um, and I wrote this review because something about it struck me the wrong way and I wasn't really sure what, and I felt like I had to look into it more. Hmm. So that's, you know, really where suddenly five pages later, here we are. But. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So could you can maybe yeah. su- summarize a little bit for us though? What, um, like when you say something struck you the wrong way, like so start with that. Like what was, what was it that you kind of took on bridge at? Um, I think I came at it not necessarily from a theological angle. That's not really how I'm wired or trained. Mm. So I looked at it more from the perspective of social movements or the political side of things. Um, Again, just because that's where my training was. And I think what it boils down to is very similar to what the two of you and Godesolo talked about not too long ago, which Mm. is you talked about hating evil versus loving good. Mm. Um, Yeah. But underneath that, you know, to some to summarize that, there's I think an issue of of attitude or posture that I think comes with the book that yeah is is similar to what you guys discussed. Mm. And so you think are you are you suggesting maybe that the that one of the things that's motivating the reform tradition is this kind of reaction that is maybe getting drunk on anger at people doing it wrong. I mean, I mean, how would you how would you put it? That's at least what I see, right? Like, so when I was you say hate, hating evil, right? Yeah, like so. So when I was a student, um, we we really had a lot of fun um, getting fired up about how other Christians weren't doctrinally pure, and that it's kind of like a, a, a form of LARPing, maybe where it's like, um, <laughs> in fact, I, I mean, this is actually true. The reason we ended up leaving the Reformed tradition was there was a debate between Concordia students. Uh, representing the Lutheran tradition and um, some students at Westminster Seminary re- representing the Reformed tradition on the Lord's Supper, on the sacraments. And um, it, it was kind of this heady time. Everyone's getting really excited and fired up about it. And and yet when it happened, Stacy, how would you describe kind of the mood of how the actual... It was kind of like this Civil War reenactment, like we were trying to go back to the 16th century and have these debates... Um, well, in my, I mean, in my mind, I mean, I think it was, I mean, it was definitely off-putting because it was kind of like, um, the arguments that were often used were more like, in my opinion, I thought it was like a low blow kind of thing, you know? Mm. Um, and I don't, I don't, from my experience, I just remember actually from the, I think it was from, oh, I, so the idea with communion, right? And right. so it, I, so with communion, there was the there was like an argument that was made though that oh so wait like are you gonna eat Jesus's eyeballs you know are if, you gonna poop Jesus's eyeballs you know yep. and stuff like that and I'm like oh like that's just a non helpful way I think to talk about these things and like I said anyway so that was my I thought the whole thing was off putting because of the way that the discourse went and it was um, but it was really bitter. Yes. And people kind of went away going, ew, I don't know if that's if that's the way we're supposed to do it. But I think the people who felt that were people who grew up in in the 
in the wake of the Jesus movement, the Jesus people, who really were very serious about being non-denominational. They weren't just non-denominational in that they hadn't found one. They were not really interested in conformity to that. There was just like the Bible man. You know, I mean, I I really look back on it. I was talking to David Miller, another student, and we were just t- kind of talking about the Calvary Chapel folks and how while we're you know in, within the Lutheran world, you're always you know used to really getting all your your ducks in a row and getting everything defined. There's something kind of refreshing about a, a surfer dude with a Bible. It's like, hey man, let's have a Bible study and love the Lord Jesus, bro. <laughs> and and I might have been kind of put off by that as like a fired up academic when I was younger, but eventually it kind of got to a place where, like now, that's kind of refreshing, you know, in its own kind of naive way. I mean, certainly there's an anti intellectualism to mm-hmm. the movement. In some ways, the Calvary Chapel kids, you know, they said, don't go to seminary. You'll lose your faith. You'll become stale. Maybe it would sense they saw people doing this. And, and well, and I, right. and, I, and I would say in, with my experience, too, it did seem that, um, I don't know, those in, that were more involved in sort of the Calvary Chapels and things like that, uh, at least the youth that I interacted with, they definitely seemed to, um, I don't know, I would say like, I don't, I don't want to say buy into, but um, they actually often did want to like even do Bible studies in high school, uh, you know, during their lunchtime, that kind of thing. Like they incorporated more of their life uh, with their Christianity versus separating out, say, here's my church way of doing things. And it just seemed a little maybe more distant, a little mechanical, I mm-hmm. guess, mm-hmm. you know, and here you go through these steps, you go through this, you know, I don't know. That was... <laughs> That was my experience that it seemed that sometimes there was a a lack of warmth in some of the more, um, like, say, Reformed or um, Lutheran churches that I was involved with. When you think about the Reform movement today, Luca, what do you think, um, like, who are representatives of it now? Because, like, it's it's kind of like praise music whenever I dabble back into it. I'm like, hey, what are you guys doing? And I don't know the songs anymore. You know, so our cats were, you know, Mike Horton— and uh, and like R.C. Sproul, and that's not who the kids are talking about these days. So who who who's like a reformed, uh, you know, new con- new Calvinist these days? I have encountered R.C. Um, Sproul. He's I think still, if anything, he might have gained a little bit more popularity. But um, I think now are you talking about R.C. Sproul Jr. Oh, so you might be. Uh, this is the key, okay. right? Like I'm so old time. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, no, I'm talking about the old man. Mm-hmm. Um, but so R.C. Sproul Jr. Mm-hmm. I know is, is still is mm-hmm. still around. R.C. Sproul probably is popular because of how popular he was, even just his writing. So maybe yeah. it's the same guy. Um, but Tim Keller, John Piper, especially, um, I guess John MacArthur would be part of that tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, Albert Moeller, the former president of Southern. Those are, I would say, the big guys. There are other ones like, um, I think New Calvinists also look back to Schaefer a lot. Definitely. Yeah, Francis Schaefer, How Then Shall We Live, really influential. Certainly influential for me because the reason I got into more of the church history side of things was I, I really enjoyed his reflection on history did you ever read that book it's it's how then shall we live how should we then live um, yeah I've, I've got a copy on the bookshelf never yeah. you should you should read it there are there are some i would say if you use it as a history textbook and then you go to try to get a master's degree in history it's going to screw you up so it's good that you didn't read it yet for instance he equates renaissance humanism in many ways with modern secular humanism 
and that's just a mistake, <laughs> right? Mm. But I think he he kind of sees this this secularizing trajectory through the Renaissance as a problem. Uh, his son Frankie Schaefer was kind of critical of his dad, but said that the only time that his professional theological father um, was really a good father, really connected with him, was when they actually went not to studying theology, but went into evaluating art. The guys that you mentioned, though, um, don't do that as much, I would say, right? So whereas there was that tradition, you know, Francis Schaeffer's talking about film and art, and, the, you know, he's, he didn't smoke weed with the, with, the, um, with the Rolling Stones, but they passed a doobie past him, and he didn't complain, you know? So there was that, there was that you know, you were talking about that connection between, like, kind of the mass culture and the, and the evangelicals, where you don't see that as much anymore. You're not going to see Tim Keller hanging out with Bob Dylan, and, and maybe Tim Keller doesn't smoke a doobie, but he's not, like, so, that worried about it. And so one of the things I, so, because, I mean, I understand some of these names and things, but they're not, like, totally, um, I don't know exactly what it means when you mention, you know, one of the names. And I know from my own experience back in, like, say, the 80s and 90s, um, what I felt like the evangelical world and the way it related to cult culture was sort of when you were mentioning about some of the stuff about like Bob Dylan and all that kind of thing is that it's sort of like you can engage in culture, but with training wheels. So mm. certain movies weren't good to watch, but you could watch some movies. Certain music isn't good to to listen to. In fact, we're going to, you know, we're going to destroy these tape cassettes we can get time, rid of Slayer, right? but you could kind of dabble with, with right. the Indigo Girls and you too. So <laughs> I guess... How does it, how does say, what is the new take on some of this when you're talking about like sort of the, the engaging in culture in a different way or, you know what I mean? Like, what is it, what is it now? I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, is anybody worried about like movies and music or any of that kind of stuff these days in terms of not touching it? I mean, I, I really think so that there's a, a real separation even more so than in the past, although they should really be more worried about God's Not Dead 3 and, and Pure Flix, in my opinion, but mm. um, just from a quality standpoint. So they standpoint. want to see more movies like God's Not Dead. Um, I mean, I think nobody should, but... Right. I was sad to see that there was a God's Not Dead 2, but now I'm horrified to know that... We just got to take a divergence for a, se a second here. Uh, God's Not Dead 3, have you seen it? I don't know that it actually came out. I think they're in oh, production it's in still. Production. This is good. Now, when this is because this is an aside, like what I, I I know that it is true that if you hold to deeply, you know, evangelical cultural beliefs, especially about gender and um, certain political issues, it's not going to go well for you just culturally within the, the mainstream university. But I'm pretty sure I've never encountered a spot where everybody in the class had to affirm atheism. That seems like something maybe more uh, like a Castro's Cuba or, or uh, Maoist China. Right. I know that there may be some places, but um, when you were at, uh, at Cal State Fullerton, how did you, you know, because you went from a Christian university over to, uh, you know, uh, like you say, kind of more of commuter, secular institution. How did they treat, like, how did your professors treat Christianity, if at all, or religion? I don't know that we ever really engaged on that. Um, there were some things where we kind of beat around the bush on it, whether we're talking about do you think uh, in some of the theory classes we get into discussions like well are humans and animals really different and then you know is there is there any difference at all that kind of thing so that you would kind of touch on that and certainly that's that's met with a maybe a certain degree of of scorn mm -hmm. but i wouldn't 
and there you know other classes where the political divide was addressed and I, I would say the professors for the most part did a, a good job of if they said well you know I don't necessarily see it that way but they weren't going to be there and interject you know their opinion really strongly they more well maybe that's because the rest of the class was wasn't really a fan of it so they didn't feel they had to put their opinion out but for the most part I think they did a good job of, of staying out of that yeah so the, the main thing though is you're looking at this uh, this book by Kruger and I think it's a good it's a good one to look at to say and I haven't read it but it's, it's like here is this here is this artifact and you're looking at it now not not so much theologically, but you're looking at its cultural significance within our, our context. What is your biggest concern, you know, if you would say, like, if this, if this is accurately representing a, a swath of Reformed Christians in America, what's your biggest concern about it today? Well, in looking at it, I think that it, yeah, it, I think it's a, a good example of sort of the, the attitude problem that's crept into these circles and again going back to what you and Godeslo, the two of you and Godeslo talked about not too long ago there's you know I, I think that something's a little bit off here with re, with regards to that you know there's a really big what the, the catchphrase amongst them is you have to have a right understanding of God this is the this is you know the most important thing in their in their teaching curriculum kind of thing um it's do you have good theology but i don't necessarily know that that's really the core of what christianity is and um you know there's a lot of cultural components to it that i don't know if they inevitably always are going to come along with calvinism maybe the two are just going to be linked like they perhaps have been in the past you know that's you know a question that i'm thinking about but um yeah, I, I think I see things where maybe conservative politics is playing a role in conservative theology, and I think it should be more the other way around than, you know, politics influencing theology as much as theology influences politics. Wow, yeah, <laughs> that that, uh, that would be a good day. Do you, uh, do you have hope? I mean, there, there's a lot of people, I would say, that since you've been a student here— um, the shift, it's not just here at Concordia, but it's, it's a shift generally with the generational uh, movement. They're not really even angry about religious issues. They're not interested. It's not that they're saying, I'm an angry atheist or I'm a, I'm a charismatic and I don't like your Lutheran stuffiness. They're not asking the questions. They don't care about the questions increasingly. Now, there's certainly students that grew up in an evangelical, Southern California evangelical scene. I get that. But it's not, um, it's not as common. You know, a lot of people might say they went to church, but they're really here like, hey, they just want to play volleyball or they're, they're here to get a business degree. And um, it seems to me that if I just look at the limited sample size, but the population of kids that are going to a Christian university in Orange County, the evangelical Bible Belt, of the West Coast, um, the fact that so few people are even interested in religious questions and uh, going to church proportionally to before, and again, at a Christian university, this gives me uh, a sense that there is a decline. 
uh, or uh, there may be a decline in the future. And I'm wondering for you, A, do you, do you see a decline? Am I missing something? Maybe it's just a decline in our world. And then if the church is going to you know, be relevant to you 20 years from now and, and people younger than you, what, what do you think the church would need to do to maybe rethink the emphasis on pure doctrine as the, as the front and center uh, piece? Um, you know, what, what, what would you be looking for for a church to be healthy and thriving in the, in the future decades? Well, I guess looking at it, you know, historically to address a bit of your question on numbers, um, well, for, you know, first of all, there are lies, darn lies, uh, although that's not really the word, but darn lies and then statistics. But um, there's a part of me that thinks, and this is just like a theory, just throwing out into the wind kind of thing mm-hmm. that, that's what we do here on this podcast. <laughs> See how much trouble we get into. Um, that new, more recent movements in Christianity are, uh, like I said, somewhere in this paper, um, that they're living off the the boon of the 20th century evangelical movements in terms of conversions. Like when, when reformed movements today say they're evangelizing, a lot of the time what that means is doing pastors training or mm. trying to take people from more mainline denominations who maybe have I guess they would see as having a foot in the door but they're they're right pickings for this movement um and I can't help but wonder if you know they're fishing in a smaller pond and just saying forget the rest of the population and evangelizing there mm-hmm. but I'm also kind of thinking that people who are willing to engage in these questions which you speak about are increasingly vacating the center in that you know they're either i think i think there's a a divide in the theological spectrum that's starting to mirror the political one that happened in the 1960s when the parties no longer became based more on regional interest and became and became more ideologically solidified and divided um And that makes me think that students who are willing to engage in these questions um, perhaps are looking more at going to institutions like Southern or Midwestern or, um, forgetting the name of that one in Kentucky. Well, anyway, like the Masters University or something like that. What's in Kentucky? Not Union College where I (laughs) teach. That would be too weird. You're talking about Asbury uh, Seminary or something? It's... And my brother was almost going to go there. Oh, remember. you're, t- gosh, you're not thinking about Covenant College. No, 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 no. You're saying not those, right? So, so you're saying, so the, the kind of student that I might have missed or I might be missing is not going to come to Concordia because that's not where, that's not where the juice is, right? I mean, the thing that's interesting is we saw in many ways, um, in our understanding of Calvinism back in the, in the nineties, we were very uncomfortable with John MacArthur. We we saw it as a as a as a as a very important distinction that there is this magisterial Reformation tradition. There's the Lutheran option. There's the Anglican option. There's the Reformed option. And then there's this kind of Reformed Baptist thing. And we never trust the Reformed Baptist because if you put it to put those things together, it was like conversionism, but you can't, but with with predestination, as opposed to kind of more of a covenantal approach that was you know, more inherent in the Dutch reform tradition, you know? So like when, when Stacy and I, 
you know, became reformed. Then we, we shifted up and I was a youth worker in the Christian Reformed Church, which is Dutch. And that has a different flavor. So kids that just grew up from like, you know, in Dutch families, yes, their catechesis, their catechesis was um, the Heidelberg Catechism and what we would know as just the classic Reformed tradition. And that was palpably different. People that grew up in the, in the Dutch Reformed Church is palpably different from folks who are non-denominational and then went into the, the orbit of John Piper and, and, uh, and John MacArthur here locally. And have you been following at all John MacArthur's kind of uh, troubles with the uh, the mainstream? I mean, I I saw that he got you know taken off his pulpit at one point during the past year because of uh, COVID regulations. But mm. there's the COVID stuff. He got in some they got in some trouble at the college too. So I think they're like their accreditation was under uh, under attack. But it's just kind of a different like that. That goes to your point. He's not going to fit with the system. So accreditation. Uh, major mainstream popular opinion is going to be very much uh, hostile to the master's college. Whereas, you know, people are cool with Azusa Pacific. They're cool. They're cool with Concordia as much as, as you can be with a church related school. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because again, this is experience based. I have no idea how it holds up across broader spectrum, but my brother is going to a non-accredited uh, undergraduate Bible institution. He's going to be its first graduate in December. Um, so congratulations to him. But yeah, where is this? This is Compass Bible Institute, which is attached to the church. Locally. Yeah. But a lot of the seminaries um, are saying, you know, they're going to take him. Mm. And I think this is part of, you know, a broader discussion and maybe looming time of decision about whether to, you know, separate completely from accreditation and, mm. you know, the whole thing over federal it is funding. A, it is a huge question, and it, it's such a strange one for me because of our, you know, I, since I since I've seen you, I've, I've become more vocal about my my interest and affiliation, kind of with more of a Christian anarchist perspective, which I was kind of surprised to find. Certainly, it's not a Reformed or Lutheran part of the tradition, but I find myself being you know, seen or labeled as being more progressive than some of these, uh, some of our friends in the conservative Christian world. And yet I am still intrigued by the kind of libertarian move that the Bible colleges make for the same reason that even some high Anglicans are interested in separating from secularity, right? Like saying, uh, if I play your game, then I'm going to have to adopt a false sense of what is the neutral landscape that academia has. So I, I, I agree with that, and I also agree with the idea that the consistency matters. So, for instance, I, you know, I've been talking about our recent episode, and then the student just texted me just now, the question of um, vaccinations and um, the idea that if you don't want to get vaccinated, you might have to opt out of state-funded stuff. So that's the same thing that the seminaries and colleges uh, that want to maintain a, a tradition that is outside of what mainstream society and politics wants to allow. So if you don't want to have um, gender-inclusive bathrooms for athletes, you can do that, but you can't be part of NCAA, right? So there's a price to playing with the mainstream, and that price sometimes is going to be uh, odious, 
to more conservative folks. And so what you're identifying, and I think this is really the great thesis of what you've got here, is that the whatever you think about the different theological options on the table, historically and culturally, what this reform shift in American evangelicalism, especially around here, means is that there's a, a an entrenchment or a like a calcifying of the confessional, denominational, or at least uh, ideological lines in such a way that it's no longer kind of one big conversation amongst Christians in America is what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think that you're, you're getting me thinking more about what you said about students engaging with certain questions. And I think part of that's a, you know, kind of going back to that, there's less willingness to mix this sort of freedom of thought or inquiry yeah um because it's seen as potentially leading you know leading people astray i've you know i've met some mm. people who have strong reactions to what the two of you do you know yeah, in you terms think? of well yeah especially with you know with looking so much at Taoism, and people kind of wonder yes. why who i've talked with and i think that there's less willingness to you know mix the theological and the and the philosophical and mm. you know there's there, i think there's something to be said for both of you being kind of like that um I'll, I'll liken it to professor snape who spends a lot of time studying the dark arts but yes. he always he always comes back home at the end of the day yes. but um you know there's people who you know, you know clearly you would know better than me who aren't you know willing to do that so yeah that's really interesting you mentioned that because that's true right like so we were talking about should you listen to you know rock should you listen to rock and roll but the new question is, should you even be reading outside of your tradition? That is what we, I think, Luke has finally helped us to figure out what the heck everyone's mad at us for. <laughs> well, and the thing, the thing that I, so when you were mentioning about even with like accreditation and all that is to the point where, um, you know, you're, you're sort of taking accreditation into standardized testing, like comparing it to that sort of thing, right? Just that I, I can understand wanting to break free of accreditation because you, some of the stuff, it just feels like you're just going through motions. But I definitely feel, and one of the things that is dear to my heart, of course, with this podcast is there's a certain level of protection that is offered, though, when these outside bodies are looking in to make sure that it doesn't turn all weird on itself and get unhealthy for the people. Culty, abusive, uh, sweep in sexual abuse under the table. That's one of the reasons why it's good to have a denomination that's overseeing it, although they've been all failing for the most part, but that's the concept. And so when you talk about sort of, you know, you know, playing with the dark arts or whatever, there's oftentimes too that, you know, we've been warned against reading certain things or whatever, and you start to realize some things are actually helpful. And for whatever reason, other people were afraid or steered clear, and yet we don't necessarily, like, we just have that assumption, and we didn't know why. And yeah. so I think that what I get concerned about is just a, a knee-jerk reaction against something without understanding why that is the case. And so if... If you're somebody that anything that you read, you're just going to completely believe in or whatever, like you got to be careful of that. You have to you also have to have have to have discernment. Uh, but it's not always helpful to just steer clear of something just because somebody said down the line that this isn't good. You know, I think that there are things to be learned from 
it and also to understand why it is that you believe and what you believe. And I, I don't think you can properly fully form that without seeing multiple perspectives. Stacey, this is brilliant because I think this is this is really getting right at the at the issue of like why are these tensions happening when we don't really understand it? The world kind of shift shifted, and we've shifted too, but like the world shifted of Southern California evangelicalism in this one way. When we were kids, everybody was worried about us listening to ACDC because that's Antichrist Devil's Children and Kiss was Knights in Satan's service and there was backward masking on the White Album or whatever it is. So the idea was for evangelical kids in the in the 80s and 90s we were supposed to read the existentialist atheists we were supposed to read up on um uh, marxism and uh and the jehovah's witnesses and what the mormons were about i was addicted to every day tuning into the bible answer man because this wasn't just about apologetics it was about church history it was like you've got all these pastors doing devotional stuff on the radio but then in the afternoon there was a show that was going to help us to just explore world religions and all this and that was like this heady time that actually was part of the founding or at the at the the cultural founding of Concordia when Charles Mansky came on the scene uh, one of the things I was really interested with Charles Mansky was he was uh, an expert in world religions and so it was really important you went you were supposed to study Here's the Reformed tradition. Here's the Lutheran tradition. Here's the Wesleyan tradition. Now make your decision. That's a very evangelical question. Mm-hmm. When we were kids, we were asked, are you Reformed? Are you Calvinist or Arminian? Today, a lot of the training that happens in churches, they don't ask that question because unlike our evangelical upbringing where you are to make a decision, you're, a, you're an evangelical. You're like, a, you're like a blank slate. And at church, we're taught to think for ourselves, even though there were all sorts of messed up crap things that happened. They taught us to read the Bible, think for ourselves and come to a determination, and then read other things and come to a determination. Whereas increasingly, I would argue in Lutheran circles as well, of course, the idea is memorize what our tradition says and remember that these other guys are bad. And that's, and, a, that's a very different scene. And the other piece I would put to that is sometimes that you are somehow naughty or bad for looking into some of these other things right and, right. and that somehow it's like looking it's, at a nudie magazine almost yeah it's almost to read the methodist a sin you know yeah and that i think that that is also you know like it's or that um j- just that the nature that something is like written down that somehow that's going to infect your your soul and you know and and turn you turn you into a demon <laughs> or something. Right. I don't know. I mean, I know that's a bit extreme, but I I do feel that there's a naughtiness attached to even looking sometimes at yeah. these other viewpoints, which I find disturbing because I find it now becomes then a matter of you're trying to control people and yeah. their access to information. I am really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you about this because. Um, it's not the the layer of the conversation I would have anticipated. It's usually, you know, we kind of get caught up in talking with older people about these things as if that's the that's the main narrative. And now it's just increasingly not as relevant. And so it's really nice to check in with you on, um, on kind of how it looks from your, uh, your vantage point. Um, are we missing anything? Is there anything else you want to chat about? Well, I think like with respect to a couple of things that the two of you touched on, um, the great paradox that underlies this last point is that especially for Calvinism, the 
the message of God is going to be sufficient by itself for, I guess, God to call his own. But there's less confidence than ever that that it's true, I think, underneath, which is why there's less willingness to let, um, you know, the young explore other traditions and look into it. Mm. And, you know, I think also your point on authority was interesting because, you know, things happening in, in the church, because I know both of you do a lot with people who, you know, haven't had the best of experiences, you know, thinking about walking away and that kind of thing. But that emphasis on authority, I think, is really returning to these reformed circles. And um, I addressed that a little bit in the piece I wrote because it it would seem that um, it, it kind of reminds me about what you once said in the ethics class about the Catholics and the priests and they forgave them, but then they put them right back into the same position with this right. assumption that, you know, God's gonna, you know, he's got them, they're changed, you know, that, that kind of thing. But that's become kind of a, I guess you, the, in theological terms, it's a bad application, ministerial use of reason is sure. how I would put it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, it, but everything kind of comes back to that idea of, of sovereignty, I think in some respects where, you know, they're willing to do that, but in the process have kind of lost bad organizational management practices hmm. and, you know, overs- you know, oversight of, you know, what's going on in the church and having those power dynamics there and maybe, you know, operating without an elder board or whatever it is that, that can happen. Mm. Yeah, I really do think, and then this is, this is true, this is what we've talked about with Emily Joy, that the, the hyperattention to authoritarian uh, culture is a theological move related to everything we've been talking about, but it has the unfortunate effect of not just eliminating, let's say, feminist voices in theology, but 16-year-old girls' voices in the youth group that need to be heard. And so kind of a culture of not listening is sometimes something that says, oh, you're just being woke police you you know you're just too caught up in the 21st century concern for uh you know uh language and political correct speech when in fact you actually have a creeper in your midst right and i think i think that i'm not saying that every calvinist church is going to be that dangerous place i am saying that the reformed churches and certainly the lutheran churches that want to emphasize the importance of the pastoral authority and all this need to also balance that with you know, at least elder board oversight, people kind of making sure that there's uh, people watching what's going on and that there's lines of accountability. I think that's a very, I wasn't thinking about that, but well, very good connection. If there is, if there is possibly a decline, as you had mentioned, there could be, um, you know, that, there, that causes a lot of fear, right? And mm-hmm. so for church leaders, for church leaders, yeah. right? And, and for upholding, you know, their, denominations or viewpoints or whatever and so if they're controlling the information then they'll be slower to become you know irrelevant uh you know according you know to the 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 people that are attending or whatever because they're they don't really know another way i would say um it's part of it like so let me let me explain like this i think when you're born into a home your parents sort of create you know, or, or whoever's taking care of you creates that environment and you don't really know that there's a different way until you start meeting other families right and then yeah. you see the results of what you know their lives are like and, and you can dangerous. then then you can kind of compare like 
is my life my life is better in these ways and my life isn't in these and that kind of stuff and I, I feel like um, the fear of change the fear of exploring other church traditions right uh, or and that and losing people right is huge and so by once again locking down and and when you need to enforce that authority when you need to enforce that power you're trying to then bring people in line but unfortunately i don't think historically it ever truly plays out well that it it might in the short term have the consequence that you're hoping for but i don't think in the long term it has the longevity and actually does what you're doing if you are preaching and teaching the truth the truth doesn't need to be controlled or defended right it doesn't you just let it, it you speaks just, you for just, itself you just get it out there so that it can be and the more that you feel like you have to control yeah. what truth is <laughs> or defend it i i wonder if you're actually defending or controlling truth or just your version of it and that's why i like what lucas said about the um the underlying perhaps uh, unbelief or fear mm-hmm. or doubt within it, which is, by the way, a very difficult thing for the Reformed tradition because I remember in uh, one of the things that kind of got me to, to make the jump from the Reformed tradition back over here to the Lutheran tradition was researching um, the 16th, 17th century uh, pre- uh, Puritans, Calvinists, who uh, expressed that they were demon-possessed because they didn't have a category for their own inner doubts. So the idea was, if you're elect, you're not going to fall away, but I start to feel in my mind some doubts about God, and that must be the devil. It can't be my own thoughts. And I saw so many of these um, you know, uh, 17th century Reformed journals of people dying unhappy and scared that I thought, well, the whole point of it, the whole point of the, the, the doctrines of Calvinism was really to give assurance to people who had grown up in a late medieval world where the church had taught that you cannot be assured of your salvation well calvinism says no you're like you're never going to be lost unless of course you're reprobate then you're never saved in the first place and that gets in your head (laughs) you know what i'm saying so my point being stacy one of the specific one of the unique fears for the reformed is that they can't go in and out of it even with the like even with the lutheran tradition you can like say you know i'm going to opt out and then i'm going to come back in but in the Calvinist tradition, you can't go out and in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And there's right, a passage in, right. in, in Hebrews that says you can't come back if you leave. You know, right. so there's that fear. Um, yeah, that, it's huge. Yeah. It is huge. I mean, I know that fear. <laughs> right. You know, I, you know, in my own life, like if I'm exploring, the, am I, you know, am I, you know, going to go to hell? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's... Yeah. Even like you said, reading and exploring, I literally had to kind of come to terms with the fact that this material in itself isn't going, it's not evil for me to read it. You know, there's things that are better or worse for me to consume. I understand right. that completely. But it itself and reading something isn't going to then turn me evil and make me go to hell forever mm. or exploring something. But yes, the reform, yeah, and I. Right, I so if, if you decide, you're yeah. like, well, I'm going to be a Taoist for a few weeks, you don't get to come back and be a Christian. No. <laughs> well, unless... The good news is Taoists don't really exist. There's like, you know, if you want to light some candles to, to some statues, that's fine, but that's not really uh, that's not really a viable option for... That's, by the way, Luca, that's one of the reasons we kind of are interested in it, because it's 
it's unlike um, any of the other traditions where to accept it, you have to kind of join up with some kind of cult that's trying to get you. There are no Taoists at the airport trying to convert you to their cult. <laughs> At least not yet. Maybe we could start one, but I'm kidding. But you mentioned, too, with the evangelizing coming from, you know, other areas of, say, Christianity, uh, you know, different circles or whatever. And and that makes a lot of sense because the, the groundwork in a lot of ways has already been done. And what the reform tradition does is offer a structure yes. that is attractive. And roots and history yes. and a theological Which is attractive tradition. to people that feel like they're just kind of flailing around. And I think that, right. um, you know, and, and people want certainty yeah oh yeah and that and that is one thing if if nothing else the reform tradition offers intellectual certainty it is smooth it is like an engineer's mind made it like up you know it's like perfectly fit together whereas what was attractive to me about lutheranism was that it wasn't that it was like the paradoxes and the and the tensions anything else you want to hit no i mean that was kind of what i thought about when you when we were kind of talking about this conversation about authority and and so on i don't think that the reformed movement thinks about itself consciously in that way because Mm -hmm. it always goes back to um it always goes back to scripture there's a really really interesting passage in wayne grudem's systematic theology that i read that um he said something like the the argument for a final authority is always circular um but he was it didn't really bother him at all in in the same way that, you know, everything within, you know, like you're saying, the, the system's very smooth. Everything within it, mm-hmm. um, you know, comes comes back to that. It's coherent. Yeah. And, you know, that's, it's just very interesting to see that, you know, the standards of reasoning that have been laid out and the answers that have, that have come about because, you know, they've certainly thought a lot about, these challenges but they have a sort of self-contained system of ministerial reasoning that uh you know can provide answers to a lot of these questions and without reading things that are outside of it you know certainly you're not gonna ask you know questions when there's already a really good um at least at the surface level of questions provided or answers provided oh man that is that is a really powerful insight my man because I remember there was a movie, I forget what it's called, and I'll link to it, but uh, there's a movie where Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist, famous uh, uh, new atheist, was sitting in a car and he was talking to Doug Wilson, the reformed uh, guy from Moscow, Idaho, who's got some serious problems, by the way, um, outside of theology. But he, uh, for instance, he seems to defend uh, pre-Civil uh, War slavery, which is uh, not getting anywhere. But... Um, but I saw there was something very attractive about it. Unlike some kinds of apologetics where you have to like kind of build up your case in, empirically. Um, they got along kind of well because he said, you, there's nothing that this atheist can throw at me. I just see the world in a totally different way. I just have a different way of seeing the world. So I actually, at a, at a fundamental level, while some fundamentalists don't have to engage the culture because culturally they just are closed off, theologically and ideologically new Calvinists say I don't really have to engage the culture because they're reprobate they don't see the world properly they don't have what uh, Alvin Plantinga calls you know proper noetic uh, function so if your brain's not working because you're sinner and you're and you're fallen there's nothing really to be said there's there's like a fundamental philosophical divide or chasm between the two and that's why in a certain sense apologetics 
uh, of any kind of uh, you know positive apolog- apologetics doesn't work. And there's no reason really to read anything else other than just to be able to inoculate kids from it, you know. It's it's fun to be able to put all these things into perspective. It's great to see you again, uh, and uh, best uh, best of wishes and best of luck to you in your future endeavors. Now that you're uh, you're all done with a master's degree, I mean, it seems like you were just here. Yeah, it's like you know, I guess we're getting old. Well, and you've definitely, yeah, you've given me some things to think about, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's yep. been a pleasure. Yep, Dokendo Discamus and teaching we learn, and to all of you friends on behalf of Luca Azuma, and uh, and me. Peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.